0: Our sermon text for this morning comes from uh, Acts 15, verses 1 through 5, but I actually want to read two passages uh, because we see a a contrast in these two passages. Um, I actually meant Acts 16, uh, 1 through 5. There's an error in the bulletin there. It's Acts 16, 1 through 5. Continuing our uh, working through... The book of Acts, we have uh, the start of Paul's uh, second missionary journey. He's gone, just departed from Antioch. He's been uh, through uh, the churches uh, of Syria and Cilicia. and Now he's continuing through Asia Minor. And now he finds himself in Derbe and Lystra. So let's hear God's word first from Acts 15 1 through 5, and then we'll brief, jump briefly over to the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So let's hear God's word, Acts 16, 1 through 5. Then he came to Derbe in Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And Jumping to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. As we've worked through Acts 15... You've seen again and again, at this point it's probably been drilled into your mind, that circumcision is a matter of indifference. It's not necessary to be circumcised to be saved. But as we've seen that circumcision is a matter of indifference, we've also seen that this is only true in a general sense. If I were to live in a bunch of Christians who are saying, you've got to be circumcised if you want to go to heaven, and I went and circumcised my son as a result of that, I would be sinning. Suddenly, it wouldn't matter whether uh, 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 it wouldn't matter that circumcision was a matter of indifference. I would be sinning by practicing circumcision. I would be sinning because I would be compromising the gospel, I would be adding to the work of Christ. Suddenly, this this matter of indifference would become sinful. And as I've been preparing these various sermons on Acts uh, 15, on these matters of indifference, I found myself sometimes wishing we just had a list of, of all the matters of indifference. That would... Uh, uh, uncomplicate a lot of matters in the Christian life. If, if God just gave us matter uh, a list of, all oh, this is all in indif- different matters, our lives would be pretty easy. And perhaps you found yourself wishing the same thing. And yet there are no such lists because, in part, there is no inviolable matter of indifference. Even matters of indifference can become sinful depending on how They are used. This is where we as Christians need to use a lot of word-saturated and spirit-filled discernment to work through matters of indifference. There are many situations in the Christian life that require a lot of discernment. As much as we might want Scripture to speak exactly to every situation we find ourselves in, Scripture doesn't do this. That's not the way sufficiency of Scripture works. Scripture doesn't tell you the exact name of the person you're supposed to marry. It doesn't tell you the the day you're going to die. It doesn't tell you whether you should drink a coffee or not. It doesn't tell you whether you should wear jeans and a t-shirt tomorrow or, or you should wear a tie. Instead, God has given us specific principles and specific commandments to to follow in his word, which we are with spirit-filled discernment to to rightly apply to our given context and situations. And when we do that, we, we see that scripture is sufficient to help us work through all the specific situations we find ourselves in every day. You can rejoice that God hasn't just given us his word and said, well, you try to understand this by yourself. No, God has given us his word, and he's given us his Holy Spirit, that we might take God's word and rightly apply it to our daily lives. And this is how we are to work through matters of indifference. Now, as we read Acts 16, our text, uh, you've Realize that this is the history of Paul circumcising Timothy. And it might have come as a surprise to you, especially if you're not super familiar with the book of Acts, that that we find Paul circumcising Timothy. After all, we we spent countless sermons in in Acts 15 uh, dealing with the fact that uh, Paul and Barnabas are, are battling against those who are saying you have to be circumcised. And here in Acts 16, suddenly it's like, oh, none of that mattered. And and now Paul is circumcising Timothy. You might wonder, okay, what's happened? Why is there this sudden change? Did did Paul just give up in Acts 16? Did he give up on his second missionary journey and and give in to these Judaizers? Well, the answer is no. And and what we instead find in our text is Paul taking this matter of indifference, this matter of circumcision, and wisely applying it to the particular context of Timothy. And in this, as we look at why Paul circumcised Timothy, we see God's word giving us principles for ourselves, for how we are As a church here in the 21st century, as a church here in Oklahoma City, to work through matters of indifference. How we are to work through complex matters that might be uh, contentious amongst us as a church. And it's really important for us to work through the difficult matters in a very careful manner. This is important for our witness as a church. We, we are members of one body. We, we confess one Lord and one Savior. We have all been baptized. We, have all, had, we all have one spirit dwelling within us. This is the witness we are to have to the world, a witness of of unity, a witness of love, a witness of peace. We don't want to unnecessarily and wrongly cause offense to our brothers and sisters. We should desire as much as possible to maintain the peace and unity of the Spirit. And so we as Christians need to know We need to know how to wisely and lovingly sort through difficult matters so that we can glorify Jesus Christ who bled and died for us, so that we can show forth that same love of Christ to our brothers and sisters and to God himself by making right use of matters of indifference. So let's look at several principles here from Acts sixteen of how we can work through matters of indifference. And the first principle that comes from our text is that you need to understand the situation before you speak to it. You need to understand the situation before you speak to it. Too often there are those who will walk into a situation and immediately say, well, this is what needs to be done. This is the solution. But as James warns us we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. We see this in our text as well. Luke tells us the circumstances that led Paul to circumcise Timothy. This wasn't a hastily made decision. This was something that Paul worked through. When Paul came to the region of Derby and Lystra, he met a Christian disciple there named Timothy. Now, it's likely that Paul first came into contact with Timothy on his first missionary journey. This seems to be the case from what we read in, uh, uh, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 11. There Paul tells Timothy, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Several months ago, we saw those persecutions which Paul endured at Iconium and at Lystra, how the Jews drove Paul out of I- Iconium, and how Paul was st- almost stoned to death in Lystra. Timothy was likely an eyewitness to those persecutions and sufferings. It's likely these had a very profound effect. On his life. Perhaps his witnessing of these sufferings was part of what uh, the Lord used to bring him into the faith. And as I'm sure many of you know, uh, Timothy would become a very close companion to Paul in the gospel ministry. He would have two divinely inspired letters written to him, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Paul would call Timothy a beloved son and a fellow laborer. This all began with Paul's meeting of Timothy and Paul's laboring with Timothy here in Acts 16, where we are told that a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. So here we have the details of the situation before us. Paul witnessed Timothy's profession of faith. He witnessed his godliness and 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 said, This is a, a, a man who can faithfully labor in the gospel. I want him to join with me and Silas so that we can bring the gospel to the Jews. But there were things that complicated Paul's desire to have Timothy go with him. Timothy had some unusual circumstances. You can imagine someone walking into this situation and not knowing the details and saying, well, Timothy, he's a good man. He's a faithful gospel laborer. Let's bring him. Let's make him an elder. Let's make him a missionary and let's send him off. Yet, the particular details needed to be understood so that right practice could be followed. Timothy was a son of a Jewish mother and the son of a Greek father. In other words, what Luke is telling us here is that Timothy was the offspring of an unequally yoked marriage. Timothy was raised in an unequally yoked household. While his mother was a believer, his father was not. His father was a Gentile. This wasn't just a Gentile who was a God-fearer. No, this was a Greek. This was a pagan. It was in these circumstances that Timothy grew up, and it was likely not a happy household. From 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, we know that his mother and his grandmother were two genuine believers who, who diligently taught Timothy the Scriptures and the faith. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. The genuine faith that dwelt in these women. Genuine faith that was marred by this unequally yoked marriage. We know it could not have been a happy household because Timothy was never circumcised. Timothy should have been circumcised. It's very obvious from our text that his father refused to have him circumcised. His father, like most Gentiles, detested the act of circumcision at this time. And how Eunice, Timothy's mother, must have pleaded with her husband circumcise Timothy, give him the covenant sign. how she must have pleaded with her husband and how distressed she must have been that her son was not circumcised. He was not given that covenant sign of God's people. And this would have meant that Timothy would have a certain level of ostracization among his Jewish family members. They would have viewed Timothy not as a true Jew, but as a sinner and a Gentile. One who did not receive that sign of circumcision. So Timothy wasn't circumcised. But the other aspect of this is that Eunice married an unbeliever. She married an unbeliever, and in doing so, she broke a very clear commandment about which God gave about his people marrying unbelievers. This was something that was not to be done. But There's one lesson from the historical books of the Old Testament. It is that the union between a believer and an unbeliever never results in good. It always results in spiritual affliction. It always leads to a sorrowful and distressed marriage. You know, Solomon fell into sin because of the influence of his unbelieving wives. His unbelieving wives led his heart away from the Lord. Malachi would testify against Israel with these words. Like I said, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Married the daughter of a foreign god. Eunice had married an unbeliever, you have suffering upon herself and her son because of her failure to abide by the law of God. And so these are the, the specific aspects of Timothy's situation. He should have been circumcised as a Jew when he was born, but he wasn't because of his complex home life. But there is a broader situation to consider as well if we are to understand why Paul went and circumcised Timothy. As we work through difficult situations, we, we don't just need to understand the particular information of, of, a particular, of a particular person or a particular circumstance. We also need to understand those those broader, those broader circumstances. This is what we find here in the rest of our text. Paul wants Timothy to labor with him in the gospel. Part of that means Timothy needs to be able to go to Jewish synagogues and preach the gospel to Jews. Paul cannot do this if Timothy remains uncircumcised. And the issue here isn't that an uncircumcised person, it wouldn't be allowed into the synagogue. We know that God-fearers, those Gentiles who who wanted to follow the Old Testament but didn't want to be circumcised, were allowed in the synagogues. They were allowed to, to be there to hear the reading and preaching of God's Word. The problem isn't necessarily that Timothy remains uncircumcised. The issue is that Timothy was a Jew, and he was uncircumcised. For Paul to allow Timothy to remain uncircumcised as a Jew would have brought unnecessary offense to the gospel. Because many of the Jews in this area already knew Timothy. They knew his background, they knew his history. They would have seen Timothy not first and foremost as a Christian, but they would have seen him first and foremost as a bad Jew. A bad Jew because he was this half-breed. The offspring of an unequally yoked marriage. And he was uncircumcised to boot. And if he was a bad Jew, how can he possibly claim to know who the Messiah is? How can he possibly say, Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for, that we as God's people have been longing for? All they would be able to see was This guy's not circumcised. Who is he to tell us who the Messiah is? This concern is very understandable. This would be somewhat analogous, although not completely, uh, to maybe a man becoming a pastor today, boldly preaching the gospel, calling God's people to repentance and faith. Yet that man was never baptized. He might be saying a lot of good things. He might be preaching God's word and applying it rightly. And yet, all of us would be asking, hopefully asking, how come this guy's not even baptized? What, what position does he have to call us to repentance and faith when he himself is not even following the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith? This man needs to be baptized before he enters into some sort of office and tells us what we are to be doing as Christians. And so Paul decided to circumcise Timothy, not because he believed it was necessary for Timothy to be saved. Now that's very clear from Acts 15. Timothy did not need to receive circumcision to be saved. Paul wasn't even circumcising Timothy to appease the Judaizers. It would have been sinful and wrong for Paul to go beyond God's word and circumcise Timothy for these reasons. But rather, Paul circumcised him to avoid causing offense to the gospel. That's the meaning of verse 3 of our text. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul makes a very wise use of this matter of indifference. He doesn't want offense to come to the gospel. He wants the offense to be the gospel itself. And so, he has Timothy circumcised, And Paul, circumcising Timothy, actually upholds what the Jerusalem Council decreed in Acts 15. Remember that the Jerusalem Council declared that circumcision, meat offered to idols, things strangled, and blood were matters of indifference. But they also declared that even matters of indifference require appropriate conduct. Thus, if you were to eat meat, even though uh, eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though it's a matter of indifference, it could become sinful in, in, in certain circumstances, especially if you're eating with a Jewish brother who would be offended by such conduct. Matters of indifference can be right or wrong, depending on the circumstances. It would have been wrong, even sinful, for Timothy to remain uncircumcised because that would have brought needless offense upon the gospel among the Jewish people. And I want to stress once again that Paul is not just bowing to the pressure of Judaizers here. Paul warred against the Judaizers in Antioch and in Jerusalem. Paul's not afraid of conflict. He's not afraid of standing for the gospel and that it is by faith in Christ alone that we are saved. Paul's not afraid to battle for the gospel. This is a matter of rightly applying a matter of indifference. We know this because Paul had a completely different response when the question of whether Titus needed to be circumcised came up. And that's what we read from Galatians 2. Titus was a Gentile through and through. And the question was, While Titus is ministering among Gentile believers. He's a pastor. He's an elder. He's ministering among Jewish believers as well as Gentiles. Does Titus need to be circumcised? And the answer was a resounding no, Titus doesn't. That's because Titus was in a different situation than Timothy. Titus was a Gentile through and through. He had none of the Jewish heritage that Timothy had. And so, while Titus didn't need to be circumcised, Timothy had to be circumcised. And so, we see here from Scripture that when we 21st century today, work through matters of indifference. We need to, to understand the particular situation. We also need to understand the broader situation so that we can make a right decision regarding matters of indifference. But I want to address a few more principles that we see from this passage about discerning matters of indifference. And the first principle first other principle is that we notice Paul's sincere desire to follow God's word in whatever situation he found himself in. Now, Paul isn't just making up decisions on the fly, following his own personal thoughts or opinions. Paul is wanting to apply God's word faithfully in every situation he comes to. And he recognizes... As well, that the application of God's word will change depending on the circumstances. Titus is is not circumcised. Timothy is circumcised. One word of God being applied in two different ways in different circumstances. So when you make decisions, you need to be sure that those decisions are based upon God's Word. Scripture is the only rule that we have for faith in life. We believe and confess in the sufficiency of Scripture, meaning that Scripture is, is sufficient to address every single situation we find ourselves in. This means that you need to be diligent students of God's Word. This means you need to be meditating upon God's Word day and night so that you might know how you are to live as Christians in the world. Christ stressed this when he gave the Great Commission. Christ stressed this when he said that the church is to teach all things that Christ commanded. We are to know all things that Christ has commanded so that we might rightly live as God's people in this world. Scripture must be the only rule we have for faith and life. Like Paul did, we too must seek to know God's word and apply it in our daily lives. And so when you have a conscience issue or a conviction, and I, and I bring up matters of, of conscience or, or conviction, because conviction, sometimes uh, these can be matters of indifference that you, you have wrongly raised to the matter of, uh, to, to the height of uh, conviction, you must be assured that your matters of conscience, your matters of conviction, have scriptural precedent. We live in a society that declares that one can have untouchable convictions or beliefs because they are conscience issues. It's as if if the the very word conscience suddenly has some sort of magical effect that that means, well, you can't touch me. Yet, Scripture teaches us that our consciences are fallible and sinful faculties. They can and they do err. And thus, our consciences must be submitted to God's Word. Scripture is the only rule by which we can judge whether our particular conscience issue is right or wrong. We're relying upon the sufficiency of Scripture. And there are two dangers I want to warn you against when it comes to determining these things. Uh, the first danger is that we just have an outright rejection of God's word, and, and instead we follow our own heart. We know what God's word says, but we love our sin more, and so I'll throw God's word in the trash, and I'll do whatever I want. Satan, that ancient deceiver, so often tells us as Christians, God's word is burdensome. It's hard. It's difficult. Why do you want to follow that word? It's so much easier if you just follow your own heart. So much more beneficial for your happiness if you, know, you just put God's word to the side and you do what you want to do. This is a, a temptation that comes to us as God's people every single day. You see the devastating effects of this, uh, of such thinking in the early church. where we see the Corinthian church rejecting God's word regarding sexual immorality. They reject God's word regarding sexual immorality and allow a member who had committed incest into the full fellowship of the church. You can see them making all sorts of justifications for it. Perhaps that Perhaps they said, well, uh, we're allowing this person to be a a full-fledged member here because, well, this is what true love is. This is what it means for us to be loving Christ, to to accept everybody and to accept every practice. Didn't didn't Jesus tell us to, to love our neighbor? Well, surely we can love this incestuous man in this way. And perhaps... The Corinthian Church at some of the, the very same ridiculous slogans that churches create today, that, that love is love. And so the first danger that we must be on guard on as, as we seek to follow God's word is that we simply follow the old men old man and indulge our sinful flesh, rejecting what scripture says outright. The second danger is similar, and yet perhaps more deadly. That is that we make a show of of submitting ourselves to God's word. But in actuality, we simply force the interpretation we want onto God's word. The history of the Christian church demonstrates one thing. It is that people can make God's word say whatever they want it to say. The Bible is used for all sorts of wrong and sinfully egregious ends. Here the church, we have Arians using God's Word to defend their idolatrous belief that there was a time when the Son was not. Jehovah's Witnesses continue that wrong use of God's Word today. Roman Catholics have used the Bible to support the heresy of justification by faith and works. Modern liberals interpret the Bible today to, to support things like homosexuality and transgenderism. The temptation is always to force Scripture to say what we want it to say. We don't submit ourselves to God's Word. Even among Reformed believers, you will have all sorts of ridiculous beliefs being supported by Scripture. I've heard Reformed believers use Scripture to argue that it's sinful to use an epidural when giving birth. I've read arguments that you have to line out the psalm before you've seen it. Some of you will, will know what I'm referring to with, with that, that practice of lining out the psalm. I've heard people say you have to use a particular type of bread when celebrating the Lord's Supper. I've heard pastors say that you cannot be saved unless you use the King James Version. I've heard a man make all sorts of scriptural arguments that you can sleep around with other men's wives. All these men would confess the Reformed faith. They would use Scripture to, to make these claims. But what they're actually doing is using Scripture. They're not submitting to Scripture, they're using Scripture to support their own sinful agendas that when we as Christians make a decision, there is to be never a pursuing of our own agenda. We must humbly and faithfully and diligently submit ourselves to God's word, seeking the grace of his Holy Spirit that we might rightly understand God's word. There's one agenda that matters and that is God's agenda and we as a church must make must very carefully guard against forcing scripture to say what it does not. So as you seek to make decisions based upon God's word must be sure that you are genuinely submitting to that word. Not making the word say what you want it to but let God's words speak on its own authority. Remember that Timothy was made wise through the Holy Scriptures. Now there's, there's wisdom for us here. That's what we saw in our call to worship. That's what we saw from our, our study of our, our reading of Proverbs 8. God, through Jesus Christ, has given us wisdom. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.15 and following, said to Timothy, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what scripture does when we humbly submit ourselves to it. It makes us wise for salvation. Isn't that wonderful? That God has given us His Word that makes us wise unto salvation. It's a Word that makes us complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What a lesson it is when we rightly submit ourselves to this Word. And as I've said this is the second um, thing I want to encourage you, and the second principle. Understanding God's word correctly is only possible when the Spirit is at work in our hearts. Understanding and applying God's word is only possible when the work, Spirit is at work in our hearts. And we see this very clearly from the Jerusalem Council. In Acts 15 28, we read, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. When we come to God's word, we must come dependent upon his Holy Spirit, not trusting our own wisdom, not trusting our own knowledge. When coming, asking God, asking God that by his Holy Spirit he would reveal to us what his word means, and how we are to apply it to our lives. Paul was filled with the Spirit. This allowed him to make difficult decisions regarding Titus and his circumcision, and regarding Timothy, regarding his circumcision. Paul understood and applied God's Word by His Spirit in those situations. We, too, must seek a Spirit-filled understanding. We must be careful not to suppress the Spirit. When we study God's Word, we must do so prayerfully, not just studying, oh, I've got to read God's Word, and so I'll just make a show of it. And when we come to God's Word, we come prayerfully, relying upon God's Spirit that He might show us His Word. We come to God's Word to learn about God so that we might grow in love and in thanksgiving. Let's be careful not to quench the Spirit, but rely upon His grace when it comes to understanding His Word and applying His Word as well. And this third and last principle as you work through whether something is a matter of indifference, be sure to ask yourself, has the church made a decision regarding this? Ask yourself, what has the church historically said about this? If you look at verse 4, you'll see the church made a decree regarding matters of indifference, and the decree had binding authority upon the church. Verse 4 says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. We live in a very individualistic culture that says, well, the only ter- interpretation of Scripture that matters is my own. Because of this, you have Christians who will refuse to be a member of any any church, because they believe, well, I'm the only true Christian, because I alone have, have knowledge and I alone understand what God's Word says. Yeah, this is a very prideful way to view the body of Christ. Must be very careful to hear what other brothers in Christ tell us. Must be careful to hear what the history of the church teaches us. If you come up with an interpretation of Scripture that nobody else or hardly anybody else in all church history has come to, you need to be very careful. You're, you're treading in very dangerous waters. You might just be believing something that's heretical. And so we must, as we work through difficult matters, we must seek to, to figure out and be a wise student of church history. We must submit our consciences to the word of God, recognizing that God is pleased to use the broader church to help us understand and apply scripture. And as we conclude here, I want you to just notice how the Lord was pleased to bless the church uh, the church's uh, use of these indifferent things. The church was strengthened in the faith and grew numerically. A proper and wise use of indifferent things will prosper the church in her faith and cause her to grow numerically. Look there, at verse five. Well, verses four and five of our text. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, so that churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. This is a promise that God has for churches who make right use of indifferent things. It promises that they will be strengthened in their faith and that they will grow. So I urge you, when it comes to matters of indifference, seek to love Jesus Christ, seek to love his church, who's made up of those whom Jesus loves, but very carefully and biblically working through matters of indifference. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you thankful, Lord, that you have uh, shown your love to your church Jesus Christ laying down his life and dying for her. Father, we pray that uh, you would grant us wisdom as your people, that, Lord, we would uh, value and treasure your word in our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be diligent students of your word. Father, we pray that your Spirit would grant us a right understanding of that word, that we might ap- interpret it rightly and apply it into our 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 particular situations. Lord, we pray that you would grant us your grace. Lord, we would make wise use of indifferent things. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in the faith, and that you would grow us. Uh, Laura, there would be a people to praise you here in Oklahoma City. We pray in Jesus' name.